Robert, the reader of the sacred scriptures tonight. Those of you with journals, you can um, take them out and you can take a check mark anytime I make a mistake and then AJ will put it on the screen at the end, whoever has the highest number. So really just make you pay attention, uh, catch anything I don't. All right, this is John 16, seven through 15. But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you uh, into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the father is mine. That is what I said. Or, uh, that's why I said the spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. Beautiful. Beautiful. So the way to do it is to read another translation so that we can't identify the weaknesses. Brandon, Manchester United won. I can see a smile on your face, brother. We're not talking about Liverpool now. I'm giving you credit and applauding your team that has sucked all season. Well done. Well done. Well done. There is, as you can imagine, great soccer rivalry here. And um, all right, so uh, a disclaimer up front. Um, this is a very weighty, sober conversation. We've been in the Holy Spirit. It's a fabulous series as I look for my red wing boots on eBay, which will probably not be my message tonight. Um, and uh, it has been a delightful journey to hear different voices. And if you're here for the first time, thank you and well done and thank you for trusting us with this moment. We're in that, the theology and practice of the Holy Spirit. And we were working through the book of Acts, got to the end of chapter four and we said, you know what, we've just skim read the Holy Spirit pieces. Why don't we slow down? Why don't we just take some time and drill down a little bit? Now, big fat theology books are written around the Holy Spirit. So dare we even suggest in eight weeks or so that we will do a great job. I'm guessing not so much. But we will do you a disservice if we don't deal with this one tonight. The Holy Spirit who is the convictor of sin. Now I put it to the team, would anyone like to teach it? And beside Rob, no one did. So I gave him the privilege of reading the text um, because it's weighty. I mean, who wants to talk around these things when it's so uncool, so inappropriate, so you know, unwoke, it's like, no one talks about sin right now. In fact, very few preachers even preach about sin. Go back 40 years or so, and it was a common place. Hell, sin, that was the church's jam. And so right now, we're stuck with the dearth of common uh, present tense uh, conversations, and there isn't much. It's highly emotional, it's highly socially awkward, and um, it is theologically complex. So I'm asking you to give me grace. I'm gonna try and speak as the 
watch on. I'm going to try and speak for about 35 minutes. I'm going to set aside some of the things I was going to say because I want to just father the moment more than be a John Mark. I mean, John Mark is my hero. Uh, when I grow up, I want to be like him. You know what I mean? I, I, I'm going to wax lyrical. I want to pull extraneous things from all sorts of weird sources. I want to read 120 books a year, don't you? I mean, that's what he does. I, I, him and his sister have this competition to see he reads the most books. And uh, I mean, it's touch and go every year. So I'd like to be him in this moment because he would have read 20 books. He would have praised them down. He would have spent 60 to 70 hours to come up with one message and me, not so much. I'm just not as clever as he is. However, what I am is a father in this community. And what I want to do is just father you through this very awkward conversation. But I want to front end it with a few things. The first is this. When Tion was three years old, um, he was sitting playing on his rocking horse just outside of my window. There's a patio, a, 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 a veranda. And I, was, I had an office here and I went off to an elders meeting. This was when we lived in land. And uh, Meryl's parents were out. So we went off to a leaders meeting. And uh, we'd been in the leaders meeting for a short period of time when I got a call from Meryl's mum to say, we think you need to come home with an accompanying picture. And the picture had a rattlesnake. What we found out was that there was a rattlesnake filled with mice that had been sleeping under his toy box on the veranda and he had been playing this far away from it. He was sleeping at this time, so I did what all good pastors did. I called the one man who's been on the mission field and I said to him, Jay, you are coming with me. We are gonna kill a snake. Now these days I probably wouldn't kill it, and in fact, I didn't even kill it then. Jay killed it. But I did hold things in place so that he could kill it. Well, the, the, the part of the story that I think is most apt to this conversation is that when T woke up and he came out and we were clearing, cleaning everything up, Meryl got on her, hand, on her knees in front of our three-year-old boy and said, T, when you see a snake, what do you do? He says, well, mom, he says, what I do is I shout loudly and I run as fast as I can thinking that will really impress his mom. No, she said, that is not what you do. And she got, get on, got on her knees in front of him, kind of looked him in the eyes and said, my boy, let mom explain to you. When you see a snake, you stand still. You don't shout, you walk back slowly. And when you are a fair distance away, you call mommy. Is that close enough to what you said? I said you do shout. I said you do shout, but you stand still and then walk back really, really slowly. And so what did he then say? And then I asked him, okay, T, what do you do? He says, I scream and I run. <laughs> so the moral of the story is obedience to parents. No, it isn't. It's, it's, it's what was Meryl trying to do? She saw her boy was in a life-threatening situation and she tried to lighthouse him, warn him of the implications that if that snake, and there was a second snake that came another time and Dana had to handle it. Um, and no, it wasn't the mate of the one we killed, although Meryl reassured the kids that the snakes have partners for life, which isn't true. That is true of some, but not true of rattlesnakes. Anyway, I'm completely confusing you. What is the essence of the story? The story is that the mother's heart was uh, absolutely focused on ensuring that her boy knows how to handle a snake when a snake 
comes. Now we know a snake appeared. We know that there was a moment in the Scripture where a snake appeared and offered an alternative narrative to the one God had asked of them. And we will get to that in a moment. For me, this conversation is really around that. I want to warn you of the implications, as I do myself, of us not heeding the voice of the, of, uh, the Spirit. In South Africa, um, uh, 300 years ago, there was a farmer called Volt, Voltard uh, Voltemada. He was a, uh, of, of Dutch descent. And he was riding on horseback in a storm um, and he saw a ship was wrecked. And he, he turned his horse into the, into the ocean and he with the horse swam out. They loaded the horse with people as much as the horse could and he took the people back uh, to safety and he turned and went out to the ocean again and he did it again and again and again, saving them until eventually his horse and he died in absolute exhaustion. It is no surprise that in that spot today is a lighthouse. And the lighthouse is a warning to all mariners that there is danger lurking when the lights go, even if you can't see there is danger lurking. There are implications if you don't heed our warning. And to me, tonight is really around that. It's understanding the lighthouse nature, the great warning from heaven. If you go down this road, there are implications. T, if you play with a rattlesnake, it will bite you. Mariners, if you see the lighthouse and don't veer from that course, the implications have serious consequences. Remember when I spoke the first Sunday and I quoted Tim Mackey, remember? And I said, using Tim's language, um, there we go. The Holy Spirit brings order in the chaos so that we might flourish. Now that was not about sin, that was about uh, Genesis chapter 1. In the chaos and the darkness of an unformed world, God breathed the Ruach and the Ruach brought order. It was the first day, second day, third day, fourth day. And so that mankind, humankind could flourish. Now I want you to remember that because we're gonna come back to that in a moment. And then last week when Dana preached, she spoke about the three common ingredients of all revivals and divine death visitations. It is prayer. When people pray, God meets with them. Some consecration, where we choose to set ourselves apart to hear the voice of God. All things that distract, quench the Spirit, push us off course, all of those things we deal with in moments of deep consecration. And then thirdly, yielding to the will of God and the purposes of God. Now, how do we handle this moment? We are all subject to worldviews, aren't we? And I'm not gonna get into all of them. I'd rather kind of get to the Scripture, Holy Spirit pieces. But we're all vulnerable to worldviews. Materialism, evolutionism, basically says anything that inhibits progress as they define progress. So we call this progress. If you do anything that hinders progress, then you are our enemy. That is sin. Sin is hindering progress. Psychologism, psychologism, that. 
fundamentally speaks about the fact that um, um, what, what is healthy for me, what, what I choose, what is good for me, what makes me feel good about me, what gives me high esteem, that, let me say it the other way around, what hinders me having high esteem is sin. Nothing must get in the way of my self-esteem growth. And so I can go through all of those, environmentalism, anything that prevents us from um, growing and maturing and, and, and mother nature and uh, protecting the land, that, that is deified. The land is deified and anything we do that hinders that is sin. And, and so we can go on. But this I found interesting. Gary Brashears gives a list of Christian approaches to sin. Sin he says it's only breaking God's rules. In other words, legalism says God has a bunch of rules and actually all that happens is when we break the rules, that's what sin is. That's generally legalism. That's the length of your skirt. That's the length of your hair. You can smoke, you can't smoke. You can drink, you can't drink. Uh, you know, when you go to the, the Christian high schools and, you know, the Bible between you when you want to dance close up and pretty, you know, it's all those things. And subconsciously, there is this shift that those rules are God's rules and if you break them, you're a really bad human being. We believe that Jesus died for our sins, so we don't have to seek holiness or repent. Please hear that. That's a twisted narrative. Jesus died for my sins. He's forgiven me. My sins, past, present and future. I don't need to commit myself in any way to a life of holiness and repentance. Well, if they don't confess their sin, they will die and go to hell. My pastor was from a Pentecostal background when I was 18, 19 and 20. He told the story that, that's tragic for me. So he grew up under this understanding. Meaning, if you don't confess every sin, if Jesus comes back now, it doesn't matter how good a Christian you've been, you're going to hell, dude. And he was about 12 years old. His family was very legalistic and he wasn't allowed to go to movies because everyone knew that was the cesspool of hell. And so he snuck out one Saturday afternoon. He went to watch whatever movie it was and he walked home. And when he got home, the doors opened. And he walked into every room and to find there was none of his family. And he called out for them beckoning. And the quieter the room, the more compelled he was that the rapture had happened and he had been left behind. And his mom and dad returned home to the 12-year-old lying on the carpet in the lounge weeping because he hadn't confessed his sin and Jesus had come and he was left behind. What a tragic interpretation of that non-theology. But thank goodness, we don't believe in the rapture either. We're here till the end, people. We ain't getting a helicopter ride out. We're here till the end. Put on your seatbelts. There's some pretty gnarly stuff coming your way. That's what the Bible promises. And this gospel we preach to all nations, then the end will come. Jesus will come when all nations have heard. Two billion people have never heard the name of Jesus. He ain't coming back anytime soon. What about, what else do Christians do? As long as they're nice and have a good heart, they'll be fine. Heard that a lot of times. If I could have a dollar for every time I've heard that, I'd be a very wealthy man. It's not really about sin. They're a nice person. They've got a good heart. You know, God will look past everything else. They're not Adolf Hitler. 
A lot of really nice people be in hell one day. Sin and fun are synonymous. Well, we must have fun and all fun. We just weave it in there and can't be that bad. If no one gets hurt, it doesn't matter. Isn't that a prevailing thing? Well, of course we can sleep together because no one's getting hurt. Would you speak to a psychologist and see how true that statement is? Do you wanna know why we need so many psychologists? 20,000 psychologists are available around the country offering free expertise. Do you know why there's so many people on antidepressants and anti-anxiety tablets? Because we're free. The 60s set us free, man. That's not freedom. It's trauma and pain. Because when we sleep together, God says we become one flesh. I told you I didn't want to preach this. I warned you. And of course, if sin is popular, then it's okay because everyone's doing it. All right, what I, I, I want to skip some things here. I want to take you just to a couple of quotes what theologians say about sin because I think that will help you as it did me. Now, you guys in the box are going to have a hard time because I'm sorry I'm jumping around here just a little bit. There's a, a theologian called Cornelius Platinga. He writes this. The Bible presents sin by a way of major concepts, principally lawlessness expressed in an array of images. Sin is missing the target, a wandering from the path, a straying from the fold. Sin is a hard heart, a stiff neck. Sin is blindness and deafness. Sin is overstepping of a line and failure to reach it, both transgressions and shortcomings. Sin is a beast waiting at the door. In sin, people attack or evade or neglect their divine calling. But can I read this one of Cornelius Plutinga? God hates sin not just because it violates shalom, which is peace, because it breaks the peace, because it interferes with the way things are supposed to be. Sin is culpable shalom breaking. Shalom is God's design for creation and redemption. Sin is blamable human vandalism of these great realities and therefore an affront to the architect and builder. And if I can summarise that, he is saying that sin is the great vandalism of our shalom, the peace of God, the presence of God, the goodness of God, the kindness of God, the beauty of God, the love of God. Every sin, when it creeps its way in, remember uh, when God says to Cain after he killed his brother, he said, sin is crouching at your door. He wants to do what? He wants to be the vandal. He wants to vandalize your shalom, your sense of peace. All too often, we view sin as some horrendous kind of cosmic, uh, angry God sitting on a throne. How can I make them as unhappy as I can possibly be? How can I twist their self-perception and their image of goodness? Well, let me make it about the clothes they wear and, and, and the, the makeup that they have and, and, and some other list of absolute irrelevancies in the light of eternity because for God, sin, and I love this quote, is vandalizing God's shalom. It's taking your peace and blessing and love and ripping it to shreds. That's what it does. 
Now, why does my father's heart bleed with this? Because I am Meryl on the ground, on my knees, pleading on your behalf. Because we have this idea that if I can encroach on sin, live on the very tantalising edges of sin or step into sin, it has no consequence for me. Yes, sir, it does. It removes from you the sense of wholeness and peace and humanness that God has created in you to be. It is the vandalism of your shalom. What a great, great sense of interpretation. D.A. Carson speaks of it, de-guarding God. We just take God out of the equation. I'm God. My laws, my rules, my values are the highest rules, values that are applied. I am de-guarding God. I'm making God like me. The only problem is, my dear friends, you and I end up deeply broken. In one of the Bible translations, our text reads, when He comes, He shall show the people of this world what they are like. The Holy Spirit will be a mirror. He'll walk around with the mirror saying, this is the way you are. He will show clearly that they are wrong. They're wrong about what sin really is. They're wrong about what is right with God and they are wrong about how God judges people. Now, if you find yourself getting all agitated on the inside, picture the scene. Meryl in front of a three-year-old boy staring him in the face and pleading with him. This wasn't the time she wanted to be popular mom. This wasn't the time to just comb his hair and say, my boy, you'll be fine, you'll be fine, you will be happy. You are a star in your own galaxy. The, The purpose of life is happiness. You can have a snake if you want a snake. No, she was on her knees pleading with him. If you understand this, my boy, there are consequences if you don't deal with the snake. Can I read two passages that deal with sin? And I'm gonna try and make as little a comment as I can. I'm gonna try and read it slowly because this is a father moment. I'm not trying to be a clever preacher. I'm just trying to be on my knees in front of you. Romans chapter one, verse 29. And they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness and evil and covetousness, malice, They're full of envy. They're full of murder. They're full of strife. You like fighting? It's really evil. Really evil. Deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips. Talk behind people's back all the time. They're slanderers, purposefully speaking ill of people. They're haters of God, insolent, Haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to their parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who, sorry, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. It's okay. The Bible doesn't mean it. We've just read that the Holy Spirit brings the Bible as a mirror for us to gaze into and to see ourselves in all of the beauty that we're in Margot Day made in His image, but it also shows us flaws, warts and all, and it gives us opportunity, your kindness, 
Martin Smith sang it in the 90s. Delirious from the UK. Your kindness brings me to my knees. It's not, oh, it's fine. I know you didn't mean to sin. Well, maybe that's not even sin anyway, because someone in the Greek, in the ancient times, said something. Folk, I come from Africa. Can I tell you what preachers do? They don't go and exegete a word into the 10th degree of, 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 of Greek and the, and the Hebrew. They preach the word that's here that they see because they know no other. That is about two-thirds to three-quarters of the preachers around the world. They don't seek to justify sin to satisfy some kind of cultural obligation. There is no freedom in applauding sinful behaviour, sinful thoughts, sinful actions. There's no freedom in that. RT, you enjoy yourself. Every little boy likes dinosaurs and, you know, playing Jurassic Park. And there's a snake for you. Come on, you'll be fine. It's fine, boy. Play with a snake. You know, folks, I don't know if I've ever preached on hell in 40 years. To be honest, I'm a coward. It scares me. The notion of eternal punishment finds no place in my intellectual perspectives. I, I cannot imagine eternal damnation. I cannot imagine the consequence of rebellious lives, knowing the truth and choosing to live an alternative life. I don't know that. I, I, I don't know what that ultimate day of judgment will be when we stand before the great God and the picture I have, my kind of imagination runs a little rabid with me. Because time stands still. Each one of us will stand before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And I can only imagine when, when, when the kind of elevator's doors open and, and there's a, an angel who cries your name and mine and the incredible joy that I will have and you will have when Jesus gets off the throne of grace and runs to us with all of His might like the prodigal son's father and wraps His arms around me. So I've been waiting for you, boy. I've been waiting for you. I've, I've prepared a place for you. I've got your spot in the new heavens and the new earth. Come on, let's show you where it is. And one of the angels says, excuse me, sir, can we just have a look at his spreadsheet? And written down in every line, upon line, upon line, is every thought, deed and action I've ever done wrong. But every now and again, there's a little something in the, in the, in the, in the side of the ledger. And the angel, forgive my imagination, the angel turns to another one and says, what's that little sign? Oh, says the angel, that's when he repented. And he said, oh God, forgive me for I'm a sinner. I need your grace to save me because my propensity is to walk away from your goodness and your kindness and your forgiveness. And as the elevator door opened and I walked out, so the great accountant of heaven stamped on my ledger, paid in full. And Jesus says, come boy, I've got, a, I've got a house for you. I've got a mansion, a room, a space. And as the festivities and the angelic hosts are singing and the, the saints of yesteryear rejoicing and, and, and whispering stories of great heroics, the door opens. 
There is a hard-hearted, rebellious, anti-God, furious person who walks in and the place hushes. And it's not a Christ who jumps off there and says, everyone's welcome. Everyone will ultimately get saved. It doesn't matter, Hitler, come, 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 come. We're gonna share eternity together. I want that message. Potpole who killed millions of his own countrymen. I want that message. Come, Potpole, come, come. It's fine. Everything's fine. Stalin who killed I think 17 million Russians or something. Come, come, it's all fine. But that's not what's gonna happen. And a passage like this, a watchtower passage, uh, uh, is, is God getting on His knees through the Holy Spirit and saying, I give you a choice. Here's the choice. You've sinned. I have. I have. You've looked into the mirror of this book and you are found guilty. Yes, sir, I am found guilty. Now you've got a choice, says the great magistrate of the Scriptures. Righteousness or judgment? Which do you choose? And to the tender, sensitive one who has a heart after God and to live a life that flourishes. Remember what, what Tim Mackey said? The Holy Spirit brings order to chaos so that we might flourish whose eyes are alive to the power and presence of God. So, oh God, your righteousness, I wanna be like you. Ooh, ooh. I wanna be like, I wanna walk like you, talk like you, ooh, 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 ooh. See? That, that, that's, I, I wanna be like you. And the smile of heaven splashes across the face of Christ because there's freedom and there's liberty and there's flourishing. You say, Chris, how the hell do you know? Well, can I tell you about my two aunts who I think were sexually abused, but in those days, no one spoke about it. Can I tell you that they were prostitutes on the streets of Durban and my dad would try and take them in and I'd wake up in the night as they were searching high and low for alcohol. Can I tell you what sin does? They died homeless on the street. Can I tell you what sin does? Now yours might not be severe. You may have a more eloquent, elegant sin. But sin never lets you flourish. I read papers from around the world most days and there was such a tragic story of a woman, a wife, beautiful looking woman, married to a CEO of some big Fortune 500 company who just jumped off a building in uh, Sydney, I think it was, 12 stories to her death. But she had everything. She was beautiful, she had kids, husband who was wealthy, fly all over the world. Why? Ladies and gentlemen, it's this gospel that we flourish in. It is this great ecosystem of sweet surrender. And I know it's traumatic to the modern mind because I've been taught I am a star in my own galaxy. How dare another God tell me how to live in my galaxy? But I'm on my knees. Or, says Jesus, sin, righteousness, or sin, judgment. Which do you choose? 
I think that's what that passage is saying. And the Holy Spirit is the great lighthouse spinning around warning, saying, please, I'm using my presence as the great convictor, the great revealer, the great uh, exposer, if you wish, to show you what sin does and the implications of that sinfulness. I was thinking of that monk. Who was that monk that stopped gladiators? Anyone remember? There was a monk who came in all the way to the Roman Empire towards the end of the demise of the Roman Empire. And he walked into the gladiatorial ring where everyone was, uh, obviously the gladiators were fighting and the Christians were getting eaten up. And um, he, he stood there, sorry, my memory's a little shy right now, but, but I remember the, the picture in my mind is he stood in front of these thousands of people, all, you know, and he cried out. He cried out to God. He said, God, would you save these people? Knowing full well that being in the centre by choice, in the centre of the Colosseum, he was about to die in the mouths of lions and gladiators. And he cried out to God for the redemption of those people. And according to historical records, that was the last time the gladiators ever fought in the Colosseum. Why did he do such a freaking stupid thing? Well, he believed that we have a choice, righteousness or judgment. Righteousness, to become the Imago Dei, the great reflector of Jesus, or judgment where one day I will stand before him and give an account of my sins. This is not meant to scare you. It's the kindness of God that brings us to our knees. This is a moment of honest appeal. How am I doing? This is a moment of honest appeal which, oh Chris, I haven't always chosen righteousness. My, my instinct is not that. I know, me too. At times, even at my age, I'm startled by the iniquity that rages inside of me. And the enemy who comes and sits on my shoulder and whispers, did God really say? Are you sure? Maybe in the Greek and the Hebrew, something else. Maybe you're just an old school. Maybe maybe you're just a fundamentalist. Maybe you're just one of those evangelical old white guys. Maybe, maybe, maybe God has something else in mind. Well, Romans chapter 14. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1.7 says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Romans 5.17 For if the trespass of one man, death reignited, that through one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness, I know these are big words, I know this is a long sentence. That was the way Paul wrote. He wrote these long, long sentences. Through the abundance provision of God's grace and the gift of righteousness, reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ. Have we got that last slide? Yeah. There it is, folks. What did Platinger say? He said, sin is the vandalization of shalom. That's what he said. And the promise here, according to Paul, as the great apostle, writer, tent maker, 
was that he said, if we bow to righteousness, what righteousness takes us to is to peace. It's back to shalom. That quiet certainty that I'm made in his image, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, and he is kind, and he is good, and he loves me, and he redeems me. That's what Platinga takes us back to, but not just to peace, but to joy. The ultimate expression where the prophet says, it's the joy of the Lord that is my strength. Now, that's enough. I'm not here tonight to give a list of sins and say, those are yours. I'm not even here tonight to point a finger at you because then I have to point back at me and very aware of my own fragility. But what I am asking is that I think the Holy Spirit is on his knees as Meryl was with Tian beckoning us to recognize, discern, and see the snake for who he is, was, and always will be the father of lies. He always invites us to another God, us, where we determine what's right and what's wrong, what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. But we have one God, and He's my Father, I have one redeemer, not me, I'm not a redeemer. I'm not even single or married. I'm not marrying Meryl so that she can become my redeemer, give me my identity. No, no, my redeemer is Jesus. Fearfully, Jesus. He went to the cross, Jesus. And then the Holy Spirit perches himself in the great uh, lighthouses. Warning, warning. Warning, warning, warning. Not with the finger of wrath or anger or resentment. That day will come. No, this is a moment of great affection. It brings me to my knees. Grace is what Paul says in the Titus letter. Teaches me to say no to ungodliness. So, here's the mirror. We all look into this mirror. What do we see? Do you see the love of God? Do you see His kindness? Do you see His invitation to wholeness? We come into the table right now. Thank you, very gracious. Thank you, that, that was easier for me than I hoped and it was still hard. But I have to believe that God, the Holy Spirit, is speaking to us tonight. Maybe the memory that you will have will be of Meryl with Tion. Maybe it's the lighthouse and Voltard, Voltamaga. Maybe it's just the fact that it's the goodness of God that brings you to your knees. But He convicts us. I would love to, my love. You know, I think you've done a great job oh, on a hard, hard subject. But I, I remembered a story uh, and I wanted to give it because I feel like it, it really demonstrates to me what the Holy Spirit does when he convicts of sin. And it was, um, oh, I don't know, two years ago we were driving up to Big Bear and I had made Chris really, really late and he was leading the meeting up in, in this Big Bear conference. And I had such legitimate reasons like super legitimate, my grandkids, this, that, that. 
And Chris was really upset and I thought, just get over yourself. You know, I, I had such a hard heart. And I sort of looked at him, whatever, and, he, and, and, and normally Chris is super gracious and he wasn't gracious. And I was sitting there and I just thought, really, what's, you know, I mean, five minutes late. Like, I, I was just justifying why this was okay. And all I wanted was for both of us to get to the other side of this disagreement between us. And clearly, I felt the Holy Spirit say, Meryl, you cannot have peace before humility. And it was one of those moments just stopped me in my tracks and I realized, actually, I just want Chris to get over it. But humility is the acknowledgement of my sin, like I made you late and I am sorry. And I know it's a very small example, but I felt to say it because that, that voice of the Holy Spirit is often going to be something you don't necessarily want to hear. I don't know that I wanted to hear that because what it meant was I had to say, Chris, I am, even though I was like, why don't you just get over it? I had to say, Chris, I'm really, really sorry that I made you late and graciously forgave me and then peace came. And I think sometimes we, we try and get to peace. You know, we just want to get over. We want to be over this. But sometimes, well, I think all the time, it demands humility. It demands the acknowledgement of this is what I did wrong and I need to apologize. Thank you, my love. You did apologize. So what I, I'm going to ask the lead, we've asked some of our leaders to go and make themselves available along the wall here. I'm sorry, we've got such limited space. It's not meant to like look at us, but so I wonder if they would go there now. I'm asking you to be courageous tonight. I'm asking you as we come to the table, if you need to get before God, and the Bible word is repent, it's a beautiful word. It's not a horrible old school Pentecostal word from the South. It's an invitation to bring closure to. It's, it's allowing God through the redemption of Christ to bring closure to this. And I love that verse which says, and remembers my sin no more. So this isn't ongoingly, he reminds us, but didn't you apologize last Tuesday? He never says that because he remembers our sin no more when we repent. And we come into the table now and like Meryl, I'm on my knees in front of you. And like Meryl, I'm asking that you give due consideration because lying under the toy box is the snake who wants to take from you your humanness, break you from a, a life that flourishes and a clear sense of call. This is why I'm on this planet. Now, if you want, go and chat to one of these leaders or just say, look, I don't want to talk about it. Would you pray for me? That's cool. But we're going to come to the table. Thank you for listening to the Genesis Costa Mesa podcast. To find more information about our community, feel free to visit our website, www.genesiscostamesa.com or find us on social media at Genesis Costa Mesa.